This is episode number 706 with Mike Posner. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Learning is not child's play. We cannot learn without pain. Aristotle. Today we have my friend Mike Posner, who is a singer-songwriter, record producer, and poet on the episode. He's known for releasing the popular studio albums 31 Minutes to Take Off and At Night Alone. And he's written songs for many popular artists like Justin Bieber, Labyrinth, Maroon 5, Nick Jonas, Big Sean, Nelly, Austin Mahone, and many others. He has earned numerous nominations for prestigious awards like Grammys and the MTV Video Music Awards. And today we go through a wide range of emotions. We have a lot of fun while playing a song together. We we play the guitar and sing together. We also talk about death and what death has taught him about the value of his own life. He shares deeper about what losing his father recently and losing Avicii to suicide has taught him about life. We also talk about how happiness is not a product of what we do and what keeps artists happy when they are not selling records or touring. We go into if he thinks anyone could live a life without pain and suffering and so much more. He's a true artist. He's a true poet. And I think you're going to enjoy what he shares about art and happiness and finding your purpose through happiness in this episode. Welcome, everybody, to the School of Greatness podcast. I'm very excited today. We have my man, Mike Posner, in the house. Good to see you. Don't hit the snap. (laughs) How many songs have you written overall, you think? In my life? Yeah. Thousands. Thousands? Yeah, thousands. Maybe close to 100. No, like between 50 and 80 per album. Wow. Then how many come out? 10 to 12? 10. Yeah. Yeah. I think the next one's nine. Nine. Yeah. It's just like um like brandishing a sword, you know, it's like and then flip it over and like keep going. And so yeah, when we make an album, I'll write I'll basically go away for a year or two, write all these songs and then try to pick the best ones to produce out and record. So it'll be like fifteen to twenty of those and then we'll put those on a whiteboard and go. Uh, they're all, at that point they're all good sure but you just like these ones are a little better and so you get rid of another like six wow hopefully you have a project it's just like how many albums now I'm getting ready to release my third solo album studio album I got a few like live albums and yeah. poetry albums and I have a band mansions and then I have some albums I recorded that never came out really <laughs> got shelved and stuff when I was cold like business, political stuff. Sure. But this will be my third studio. Great, man. And what got you into uh, songwriting in the first place and singing music? When I was a little kid, like eight years old, I loved hip-hop. My big cousins rapped, and my buddies, and all the 
kids I thought were cool in school, they all listen to hip hop. And um, I want to try freestyling. And so I remember one time we had me and my buddies, Ronnie Posey and Aaron Webster. We all tried freestyle. We had like found some CDs that had music on them with no words. And we all tried freestyling over them. And I remember they thought, that, oh, that was fun. And I thought, I'm never going to stop. I'm going to get great at that. How old were you? It's like eight. Freestyling at eight. Yeah, and I just kept, I just never stopped. Are you a better freestyler or are you better at writing a song? My freestyle skills are pretty rusty now, though I still do it sometimes. And I kind of freestyle songs now. So I say now at this point, writing songs, I'm better. But it's not really a fair question because freestyles go into songwriting a lot. A lot of times songwriting starts with freestyling. You can make an argument that all songs start with a freestyle. You know, it's like a melody pops up. Where does that come from? You didn't plan out to have that melody pop in your head. It just did, you know. So when something comes in your mind, where does it come from? Is it usually something else you're watching or a deep conversation or something you see on TV where something starts to play in your mind? Well, that's the million-dollar question. Um, well, how's it work for you? I mean, do you feel like you are the author of your thoughts, or do they just pop in your head? You know? I, I think I'm inspired by things that I see or things that I'm lacking. So I have a desire for something, or there's a pain or a need based on something I want. And then based on that lack of feeling, that pain or that suffering or that desire to change something in my life— then I start to unlock this creativity of like, okay, what would that look like? What would that feel like? Where's an example of this in the world that represents what I want? Or I'll lean into music or art or dance to start to see what I can unlock. And I think that's at least how I do it. I think that does hold up because deep down there, I want songs to come out. So there is that intention there. But you hear a lot of the great songwriters, they say, I'm not doing it. It's just coming through them or what? That's what they say, you know, and, and it feels like that sometimes. It's like, do I really deserve credit for this this melody that popped in my head? Like, I feel like I'm just recording it. I'm repeating it, mm. you know? Yeah. So it's an interesting thing, you know, because part of my ego wants to take a lot of credit uh-huh. for it. Like, I'm great. Look, <laughs> look all the amazing things I've done, but sure. I, I don't know if I'm really doing them. It's just, I have these. There's thoughts on on some level. Yeah, yeah. And you've had a you've had a lot of success over your career, but when Ibiza came out, and we were talking just before when someone remixed it mm-hmm. and it kind of blew up there, was you, did your life change after that moment from what you were doing for years before with touring and having you know other successes? But did did things really change after that big hit, or did it kind of stay the same for you? So the Ibiza was my second big hit that I sang. I had some others that I've written for other people. But my first big hit was the song called Cooler Than Me in 2010. How's it go? If I could write you a song to make you fall in love, I would already have you up under my arm. I used to fall in my tree. <laughs> I like that song. Thank you. Did you sing that song? Yeah, I sang okay, that cool. song. 2010. Yeah, and I wrote it in my dorm. That was dorm. a big hit. Yeah, I wrote it in my dorm, you know, in, in, when I was in college and recorded it in my dorm and put it out. And it was my first single. It was my first single. So I thought, 
Also, what happens when you put singles out? You just make a ton of money and everyone tells you you're great. <laughs> you were in your dorm, you were in college. Yeah. You were at Duke, right? Correct. So yeah. you just came out 21 years old, had this hit, put it out online or how did it come out? I put it out online first, the original version. And there was a remix also. Remix. The original version was me and Big Sean. A lot of people oh. don't realize. So I came up in Big Sean's crew for a while, oh. just in his entourage. And I put this song out and it sort of like blew up online in a sort of a culty way. Then after I had that song out for a while, I put a whole mixtape out, like a whole free album. And then that kind of like circulated even more. I started getting offers for record mm -hmm. deals and stuff. So f like finals week, junior year, <laughs> I was, had flown to New York like a bunch of times to take meetings and sure. whatnot. And I was like really trying to finish finals. No way. And my manager called and he's like, yeah, I go back to New York. I was like, no, I need to write this paper or else I'm gonna fail. <laughs> he was like, you gotta go back to New York. Jay-Z wants to meet you. Shut up. 2010, you're 21. This is 2009. So. Jay-Z wants to meet you. So it was before the song blew up. It's just online a little bit. It's starting to get a little buzz online. Correct. Correct. So Jay-Z wants to meet you. Jay-Z wants to meet you. I, am, I thought I would go there and then they'd be like, listen, Jay got busy, we're sorry. Uh, That's what I thought. So I didn't tell anyone. I just left right, campus. Right, I'm like, Jay-Z wants to meet no, me. No, I left campus, went to the airport, flew to New York go to the office and they're like, just sort of waiting around and they're like, okay, he'll see you now. And I was like, oh, he's really here. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have my little laptop, you know, with like my sticker on the back, you know. <laughs> Duke and, University, like, yeah. Correct, correct. And, uh, and I walk in the office, it's a gorgeous office, and there's Jay-Z. He's like, what's up, man? So I was like, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> what's up? So, uh, he had like a little speaker system, you know, I went and like tried to plug my computer into it and like fumbled the cord, the aux cord, or, and like finally like played the song cooler than me and he just started nodding his head real hard like he was, I could tell he was just loving it. We spent like two hours with Jay-Z talking and at the end of the meeting he goes to his uh, partner at the time, he was like, so what do we do now? And his partner said, we do a deal. And he was like, okay, we'll be in touch. Wow. So I went back to Duke and I went back to the library. I'm writing this paper <laughs> and I checked my email and there's an offer from Rock Nation for a record deal. Needless to say, I didn't do the best job on, on that paper. It's the only C I ever got because I was quite excited. <laughs> and uh, I ended up not signing to Jay-Z for a myriad of reasons. I signed to J Records which is a subsidiary of Sony. Long story short, man, I, I made that my first album and there was a remix done of Cooler Than Me that my homie Gigamesh did. And that remix blew up. And like I said, I got totally jaded by it. I thought mm, that's what happens. That's what happens. You put out a song. Yeah, I'm one for one. I'm one yeah, for one, so I will, I, yeah, everything I do will be a hit. I put out my next song and it did pretty well, but not as well. I put out the next song and did a little worse. A little less. And then it kept going like that. No way. And just like the graph was just going from top left to bottom right, like the red line, you know? And finally to the point where a few years later, I was just, I was just ice cold. And I had really nothing to do. There was no 
my calendar was empty. And I had made like my money and I had a house in the Hollywood Hills and I had like a Porsche and just nothing to do. You were like 23, 24. Yeah, like 20, 24. I thought, what? What now? That's when I wrote I Took a Pill in Ibiza. Mm. It was about that. Because everyone loves talking about that rise up and what it's like on that mountaintop or what they want you to think it's like on the mountaintop. But I thought it was interesting what happens after you fall off. You know, Once I, you have the big success and you start to go backwards, how do you, yeah, yeah what, do you, what does that feel like? I never heard people tell that side of the story in music that much. So I thought it was cool if I wrote about that. So I wrote that song and there's a lyric in the second verse, like I'm just a singer who already blew a shot. I get along with old timers because my name's a reminder of a pop song people forgot. Wow. And the a big ironic thing was that writing those lines gave me another shot, it's which crazy, I wasn't right? really asking for, but I got it anyways, because that song blew up as well. It, do you think because it was real or because of the timing of it or because of the partnerships you had, or why do you think that took off? When all you write thousands of songs a yeah. year, yeah, and why didn't the other ones take off? What makes a song really go big? No one really knows. No one really knows, because even the greatest writers or the the most the guys with the most hits ever who more even more than me like Max Martin where they still write a, tons of songs that aren't hits so even no one has like this formula mm. you know if there was a formula everyone would be using it yeah so i think it's all those things that you listed is the fact that you know i was being honest in the song make people connect to it yeah i think so did the remix and the production that the guys did on it helped. Yeah, the, my connections helped. Yeah, all that stuff went into it. It's just, um, I don't know. I don't know. And every time I tried it, it, when I was younger, I would try to make something that would be popular. It would never work. When I just do what I think is cool to me, mm. sometimes, not always, but sometimes, the whole world seems to agree. I don't know. That's a good lyric right there. <laughs> when I do something that's cool to me, sometimes the world agrees. Yeah. It's a good line. Sometimes, though. Not every time. Not every time. Not every <laughs> that's time. You've got to be prepared for that. That's the struggle of an artist. When they do something they fully believe in and they love and then no one else cares, it's hard to take that rejection, I think, right? Yeah. Because you've written thousands of songs and you know maybe 20 Mm-hmm. people like, right? Or people sing or people, you know, it's yeah. like... Or mostly, play. yeah, most people know me for those two songs. Those two songs. You know, and I make I make albums. You know, I was my, I'm like, I'm a student of the album. So I like what I do during my day, I listen to like Rolling Stone top 500 albums and I try to make albums that good. But most people just know those two songs. Right. Which, you know, I'm not angry at them, but it's not like the whole picture. Because yeah, the album really tells a full story, I'm assuming, for you. It's an experiential thing. Yeah. I listened to a lot of your new album that Thank comes you. out in January. Correct. January, and you're going to be releasing singles coming up to that. Mm-hmm. But it's a full book, and there's chapters to the book that tell a story, yeah. right? Yeah, and you spend like months on the transitions and the order of the chapters. And mm-hmm. Make album is a funny job because you're writing... A book is a great metaphor, but you also need 
each chapter to be able to stand on its own mm. and be a great short story. To be a hit. You don't need every song you hit. You need a couple chapters Hopefully. to potentially be a hit. Hopefully. You know. It could be a standalone, yeah. 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 Wow. What's the biggest struggle for an artist that's got a hit and hasn't come back? You've made the money, you've got the recognition, you've got the relationships, but your work isn't being recognized. What was the biggest struggle for you? Did you face depression or any anxiety from that? Yeah, I faced depression starting before all that. In high school, growing up in Michigan, it'd just be gray and dark all the time. I'd go to school before the sun was up and I would play sports, I'd play basketball, and I, you know, come home and the sun was down already. And I just remember feeling like, what's the point of this? None of this matters, like nothing matters. I don't, and I don't care about anything. And I still will feel that sometimes. Then I used to feel it like for extended periods of time. I'll feel that for a day or something now. So I still grapple with that. Cause I'll have these big projects I started and I'll have some days where I'm like, I don't care about this yeah. at all. And I got like people working on it and stuff. <laughs> if you create a project, what makes you not care about it anymore? I don't know. I think I get in the mood sometimes where I don't care about anything. Life. Yeah, I just like feel low energy. Sometimes. Why is that? I spend a lot of time trying to figure that out. You know. But you seem like a happy guy. I think I am. Uh, most of the time. But I don't want to sit in their chair mm -hmm. and say, I always feel happy because that's not real. And there's enough people in the world that do that or yeah. pretend like, I got the answer. Mm -hmm. No one really got the full answer, you know? Everyone, everyone feels some sort of down negativity sometimes, I believe. Do you think... Um a musician or an artist can be truly, can reach the masses with their art without feeling a sense of pain or suffering or depression at some point in their life? Well, I don't know if anyone can live a life without feeling pain or suffering. Do you? I think we all need to go through challenges. Can you for skate sure. through though? Like even the guys yeah. that have the trust fund, like. Yeah, there's always a challenge. There's suffering in their life. Yeah, of course. At some point, they didn't get what they wanted or they got what they didn't want and they felt suffering. Everyone feels it. So Werner Herzog says, the poet must not avert his eyes. What's that mean? It means that if you're a real artist, you're looking at the beautiful and the divine things in life and you're helping people see them. But you're also looking at the ghastly and the disgusting and you're being honest about it. If an artist is not in touch, in my opinion, with both those things, they're not, they're not a real artist. And people are gonna feel that, they're gonna recognize it. Mm -hmm. It's not gonna be real. It's not gonna be real. Who's the greatest musician in, in your mind? Ah, Personal favorite? I don't know. I got so many favorites. I think, Top three. I think the greatest songwriter is Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. Because all my other favorite songwriters Listen, they all say he's the best and they're so influenced by him. Wow. So he kind of got to... What is it about him that makes him so great? Just like once in a generation talent. He's got like an unmistakable voice. Really? I mean, his writing voice. He also has an unmistakable singing voice. But man, you could just can go so deep 
with this stuff. I mean, you can just, there's just layers upon layers in the imagery and the symbolism and the metaphors. It just like, some of the stuff you listen, you go, how did, I can't, how did he write, how did he do that? Mm. You know? What about someone in our generation who's someone you really look up to right now who's either well-known or on the up and up? Yeah, my favorite songwriters is a guy, he's a friend of mine now, but I was a fan first named Taylor Goldsmith. He's in a band called Dawes. It, we call it Pen Game. His Pen Game is just... Off the charts. Off the charts. He has a song called, if anyone wants to check it out, a song called A Little Bit of Everything. And I'd recommend listening to it twice because most people, when they hear, myself included, when you hear a song, on the first listen, you hear the melody, you hear the textures, mm -hmm. and some words. And on the second, third listen, you start to hear the words. What makes him special is his lyrics. And second listen, you might be in tears. Mm. Him, and then... Uh, is another guy named Connor Oberst, who's in a band called Bright Eyes. And he's sort of the auteur of that band. Mm -hmm. And his lyrics are just crazy, man. They are just crazy. That's cool. So yeah, I recommend uh, a song by him, First Day of My Life by Bright Eyes. That song I've sung at weddings for friends and I've sung at funerals. Wow. That's how good that song is. Amazing. Amazing. What about when you started getting more successful? Did you feel like it was easier to make deep, meaningful relationships, or is it harder once you create that kind of fame for yourself in an industry? It can be harder. And this actually, is, I don't know, I think I gave sort of a long meandering rant to your last question, and I didn't really answer it. But I think this answer sort of answers both, which is when you have a hit song, or any, any sort of work you do that becomes very popular. Uh -huh. People view you through the lens of that work. So in my case, it's I Took a Pill on the Biza, which is a sad song. It's right in the, in the chorus. All I know is sad songs. So people assume um, that they, they come in contact with that before they come in contact with me. It's not necessarily like you say, you seem like a happy guy. Usually I am a happy guy. You know, I would say more than half the time I feel good. I wrote that song expressing some sadness that I was feeling. It's a good place for me to put my sadness. Productive, Express Productive place. Yeah, yeah. or a good, good place to put your anger and sadness in the song. Express that. So I think that makes it hard because people have an idea of you before you, before they meet you. And that gets in the way of your art, too. Sometimes you start overthinking, oh, everyone loves me for being the sad guy, so maybe I should keep doing that. Got to be real careful with that because then you're not, you're basically doing an imitation of your self, former self, you know? You're not evolving. You're not evolving. If you, you're NQ, who you've had on the show, who's a friend of both of ours, he always says art is alchemy. I don't know if he said it on your show, but... He says all the time, he said, art is alchemy. So you're, you're changing, you're transforming your suffering into something beautiful. And hopefully that adds something to other people's lives when they come in contact with that beauty. But if you're dramatizing or victimizing yourself, you're not alchemizing your suffering, you're just making more of it. Mm. And so you always want to be cognizant of that. 
Am I creating more beauty or more suffering in the world? Yeah. Well, Ibiza was bringing beauty to people, right? It was kind of bringing hope or inspiration for people maybe in a, a sad place. I hope so, you know. I, I, you know, the, the funny thing is that music is, the song sounds happy. So a lot of times they play it in clubs and people are dancing. They have right. joyful moments to it. And they're having that out of my suffering. Even though the lyrics might be sad, yeah. it's a dance song, yeah. Yeah, which is beautiful. It's beautiful because they're having a beautiful moment, a positive experience out of my pain, or my pain at that time. And that's the, that's all you can ask for as an artist. Yeah. You know, that's the goal. Wow. What about, what has death taught you about the value of your life? I don't think you can live a good life if you're pretending you're not going to have a death. And for me, the key is keeping death on my shoulder. Mm. We all we all learn that lesson when someone dies. And if you haven't had someone close die, you will. You, you can't escape it. You know, so for me, you know, it was my father a year and a half ago. And then Avicii this year. Mm. You know, yeah. and it, each time there's a silver lining to it, which is, one, when you miss something, you had something to miss mm -hmm. in the first place. So if you can shift your attention away from the missing to gratitude because I had something in the first place. So let's give a concrete example of that. I had a father and a damn good one for 29 years. Yeah. And I got a lot of friends in Detroit that either don't know their fathers or the father was in their life or he has a limited role in their life. And I had a full-on father for 29 years so he's dead now mm. but I'm grateful I had him for 29 years and I'm not going to complain that he's not here for 30 when my homie didn't have one at all right. I'm just not as you know I'm grateful I had that so there's that there's that gratitude that you can that you can shift back to relatively easily you know, when you're feeling grief. In addition, there's this beautiful reminder of your own mortality. That's what I what I believe why I believe why we don't like death so much is because when someone dies is because it reminds us we're gonna die. Mm. And that scares us, but it's actually a really great thing. It's a really great thing, and I think we should try to keep death on our shoulder because it makes you live a good life and it makes you for me reminded me hey you know all that that shit you do you have a list of that you want to do one day you should probably start doing it now, now. Yeah. yeah and most of us have a list you know i would say 98 percent of people i hear this have two lists they got the list of the shit they have to do and then a list of the stuff they want to do when they're done doing what they have to do. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, at least it was the case for me, there was really no ex the reason I couldn't start doing the stuff I wanted to do, you know, and I did, and I, I, I'm trying to keep doing that, you know, it's, but it's easy to forget. So as I say, you got to keep death on your shoulder. Mm. What was the biggest lesson your dad taught you? My dad used to always say there's two ages, health 
and happiness, health and happiness. And um, a lot of the lessons that he he would he say the same stuff, or I remember all his words, but I didn't I didn't really get it until now. And st- some stuff I'm still getting. Yeah, I remember my dad. I asked him once, "What are your goals?" He said, "He goes, I don't have any. He, goes, I have everything I want. I, I, I love your mother. I just sit out on the porch. I feel, I have everything I want. And at the time, I couldn't hear him because." I suspect 90% of the people you have on, I'm like trying to win all the time, doing stuff. I'm like creating goals and then chasing them down. And and there's nothing wrong with that, but he was just in a totally different headspace and living life with a totally different paradigm, which was like, I'm content. I was at a monastery this summer. I did a retreat in solitude. And I was reading this book by Titnat Han there. And there's something I'm paraphrasing, some of the page which was, I'm happy in this moment, and I don't ask for anything in addition to make me more happy. I'm content with this moment. And it's the same, like here's this monk, he's saying the same thing as my dad. Mm-hmm. You know, it took me some years to get that. You think you'd be happy if you didn't keep writing songs and keep putting that out there? The more I live, the more I'm starting to believe that happiness is not a product of what I do. That's maybe the biggest lesson is we think if we changed our outside circumstances, like if I get my life just right and all the stuff around me just right, the right job, the right amount of money, the right romantic partner, then I'll be happy. But I'm starting to really believe it goes the other way around, which is if I can figure out how to be happy regardless of what's going on or what I'm doing outwardly, all that stuff works itself out. And a lot of times it just happens with no effort. Right, yeah. The thing you were working so hard efforting towards just kind of falls into place. Did your dad pass suddenly or... So I'm riding the wave of Ibiza. Crushing it. I'm crushing it. I'm Top touring, song. I'm touring all over the world. It's a number one song, right? It was number one song like on the radio here. There's different charts. Sure. On Billboard, it wasn't number one. I don't know how high it got on there. I try not to pay attention. <laughs> That's pretty good. But they, are, they tell you when, you when you get a number one. Yeah, they give you a so, plaque or something. Yeah. Yeah, they make a big deal out of it. Sure. But it was up there. It was big it was, for a year. It was, it up, was big. It was yeah. big. And I know now... It's the number 10 song on Spotify ever, which is crazy. It's crazy. And I'm sure, you know, more big song, it'll go down. But right now it's number, <laughs> it's number 10. That's the thing about number ones is they all go down. Mm-hmm. At some point, another number one comes. Every single one in history. So I'm riding this way. I'm touring, treating other countries. My band is on point. We're like really, we're really killing shows. And um my mom calls and sh- and my dad had been acting funny, like he'd been forgetting stuff. He was getting lost. And she called and said um, they found a tumor the size of a tangerine in dad's forehead. 
and they're gonna take it out tomorrow. So I got on the plane, took the red eye to Detroit. I was living in LA at the time. I had the car, the house in the hills, the whole thing. I drove or I flew to Detroit. I slept for like a few hours. I got there, I went to the hospital with my mom and they were operating on my dad at that time. And so we were just waiting. She didn't talk to him yet. I saw my dad right before. He went in. He went in. They won't give you any water right before you get sick because you need to be dehydrated for some reason. I remember he kept asking for water. And, you know, they put him under and he went in. And then I went to sleep because they were going to, like, operate on for, like, a bunch of hours. You know, I came back to the hospital and waiting with my mom. A bunch of my dad's friends are there. And they're all waiting to see if it's cancerous, if the tumor is cancerous or was just a tumor that wasn't cancerous. There's a word for that. Benign? I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. And so the doctor came out and basically I'm holding my mom's hand, you know, and she's like, he has glioblastoma. It's doctor talk. So we like Googling it and stuff. That That's fancy word for he has brain cancer. She's on my mom's hand. She just starts crying, you know? She's looking at me. I'm like, I kind of want to cry, but I'm not going to because I'm trying to be there for her. I basically just moved, I moved back to Detroit. I sold my house. I just stayed there. And then me and my sister would take turns. She lives in New Orleans, so she'd come up. I'd go do shows. She'd go back to New Orleans. She's an attorney there. she work, and then I'd come home. Man, it was, uh, if you're going to have a death, he had the best one. He was home. He wasn't really in pain. We all got to say goodbye. Wow. How long after? Ten months. Ten months. Ten months. So you lived there for ten months, essentially, off and on? Correct. Correct. Yeah. And he died January 11, 2017. And it, then it was just cold, and I was in Detroit. And I was like. It's the worst time to be in Michigan. So I was like, I got to leave. Yeah. <laughs> and I've sort of been like on the run since. Wow. So your dad passed away in January 2017. You moved out of there. You've been on the run. Do you feel at peace about everything? Or do you feel like you still need closure with things? So, man, a lot of times, that's really a year and a half ago. I went to Venice. I say on the run. More stuff happened. I moved to Venice. And then Avicii passed away. When was this? A few months ago, right? Correct. Yeah. It was so sad, man. Did you yeah. know? Yeah, I worked with Avicii for a lot of years. Was the song Ibiza with him? It wasn't with him, but it was about, or I mentioned him in it. Mm, it wasn't all right. about him. Basically, Avicii always liked, he always liked my stuff. So he, like way back before he had levels, he actually sent me levels. To, he was like, can you write a song to Levels is. Gosh, he was a hit master. He was. Those Swedish guys, they got. They freaks. We man. always say something in the water with them because their their sense of melody seems to be. Unbelievable. Like better than everyone else. Did you write a song with him or work on any songs? Uh, yeah, a bunch over the years. Most of them never came out. Oh, man. Uh, but they're working on a posthumous album for him. So I send in all my stuff I've done over the years. Really? I don't know if it'll make it or not. But he was like me. He would do he would do a million songs, and then ten would make it. You know. I watched his documentary. I don't know if you saw this. I haven't doc. watched it. I heard it's heartbreaking though. It's heart. It's amazing to watch behind the scenes, but it's heartbreaking because the guy was touring like 
300 stops a year, and mm. he hated it. The anxiety that he had, I don't know if you ever saw him, but him just showing it how much he's like nervous before every event. Yeah. And I, it sucks. I wish he would have been able to, someone would have been able to help him or create a structure where he could get over that nerves, that anxiety that he felt. Because that's really what drove him to the alcohol and the mm-hmm. drugs and to kind of relax. Yeah. And the pressure of like, man, but I'm just so good and all these hits that I come out with, people want to see me and there's right. so much money involved so and this and money. that. But after what, four or five years, he was like, I'm retiring, I'm quitting. Right. And I don't know how, and then it was just kind of like he retired, he started to get better, but then got worse or something, right? I don't know. I, I, I mean, I would, I was in, worked with him like a month before he passed away. No way. Yeah, I went to his house. You're in LA? In LA. And uh, how they, did he seem? He seemed normal. He seemed okay, you know, relaxed. To me, but I, you know, I wasn't super close with him. I'd work with him like once a year. You know, for we a couple all, days, three days, a couple or days. That's it. Yeah. And we'd write a song. But man, it was like he seemed normal. We had two rooms going, so like two sessions. You know, people were both working on his stuff, so we'd be writing a song in one room. He'd be in the other room with other people, and. Uh, they had a chef there. It seemed like everyone was kind of like eating healthy and stuff. And I don't know, man. And like, I couldn't believe I couldn't believe it. A month later. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. He seemed positive. He was able to eat clear eyes, everything, right? Mm-hmm. Was he drinking or no? No. No. Clean. But that doesn't mean he wasn't drinking at night. I, you know, I have no idea. <clears throat> I have no idea. But it was shocking to me, you know. It was shocking to me. And it made me feel grateful for, I guess, just like the foundation I have in my family. You know, I talked to my mom. She was like, you know, I've always been worried about you. To me, it was like, I always felt pretty secure. Like, you know, I have my ups and downs or whatnot, but I never got into drugs. And I actually, I'm like pretty, pretty darn straight edge. Like, I don't drink or smoke. You know, you always hear those stories of, like, stars that burn out, you know, like our hero, like Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain. It was, like, when I was a kid, but I never knew any of my friends, you know, mm-hmm. passed away until him. He was, what, 27? I think so. It's what the age 27, man. A lot of Amy Winehouse, a lot of these people are 27. Yeah. I think some people play into it now, too, which is sad. Mm-hmm. You know, I know at least one person that does that. Really? Yeah. How old are you? I'm 30, man. You got over the hump. Made it. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be 31 February 12th. What was the lesson you took away when Avicii passed away? How did that hit for you? It's the same thing. It was like it was a reminder because it's easy to forget. We're not supposed to talk about death, and I'm glad you asked the question because no one. It's not a usual question, but it's a taboo subject in our culture. If I mention it from my mom, she said, "Don't talk about that." Mm, Really. So it's just easy. It's just a remind. It was a reminder. You're gonna to die too. What are you here for? How are you gonna use your time now? Are you just gonna do like the normal things that you're supposed to do that people tell you, you should? Or are you gonna create the life you want? What's your purpose? I think to share my gifts. I do, I think I do have a gift. No, I don't know. I don't think it's just natural. I think it's a gift now because I just did it a lot. But I'm definitely the best I've ever been at music right now. Wow. So I think to to share that. And, you know, the honest answer, more than that, 
as I was saying that, it didn't feel totally authentic to me. <laughs> What's the authentic answer? I think it's to find peace in myself and be that when, I, when I'm with people, when I'm with you or doing the interviews with you or whoever I'm with, it's to, it's to find my own happiness, my own peace, and then share that. I feel like I'm on two journeys right now. It's one journey where I'm like, Creating the out, putting the album out, doing interviews, you know, I'm gonna like impress promo mode. I'll go on TV and whatnot. But I'm also an inner journey, like this summer, where I spend 12 days in solitude at the monastery, or I just did this vipassana meditation retreat, and kicked my butt. And, <laughs> and uh, those kind of see, or like I, I meditate, I'm a meditator, so I meditate every day, and that kind of seems like a selfish thing but it's not i'm trying to clean up my own mind i'm trying to clean up all my judgments and like my jealousy and my anger i'm trying to clean all that up so that i can give the my the gift of my peace my happiness to the world and that gets into my music that gets into my interviews that gets into my phone calls and gets into my relationships and it just echoes out, you know, and I think that is the highest thing, my highest goal, to do that. To clean up my own shit and then share my own light. What's your biggest challenge you face right now in your own life? Biggest challenge right now is as I get busier, maintaining that. It's a lot easier to be a equanimous and peaceful at the monastery. When there's nothing happening. Than it is to, to do when you have a hit and you touring and how do you how do you maintain that peace and balance when you're touring every day, six months a year, you you're know, writing I, new songs, yeah. you're doing press, everyone wants you. How yeah. do you how do you do that? I mean one is my your routine, right? So I had to carve out very clearly with my team, my record label, hey, look, I sleep eight hours a day. I meditate twice a day. I eat this much. You know, I exercise this much. So I have at least a, sh that's just to give me a shot. But if I don't do that, I don't even have a shot yeah. to stay economist or, you know what I mean? So that's just give me a shot. And then, you know, it's, it's a practice. So as I'm going through the day, not only am I doing all this stuff, but I'm, I'm trying to have awareness that I am doing it. So I try to keep awareness in some part of my body all day long. Do I forget? Yeah, all the time. But I'm trying to stay aware, stay present as much as I can. When I spend this time in solitude this summer, I realized how addicted I am to thinking. It's just the brain just going all day long. So if I you know, look at a flower, usually my brain's going, oh, that's a rose. This is the last time you saw a rose. I wonder if it smells good. Smell it, doesn't smell as good as it lasts. There's a whole narrative going along between the rose and I. And on retreats, at times I was able to get quiet my mind by meditating a lot. Those days I'm meditating like five to seven hours a day. You know, I'm just alone. That's all I'm doing. And I'd have moments where I would see a flower 
or hear a bird sing or see the moon with no narrative. And it's just cripplingly beautiful. It just bring, you know, bring me to tears. Because that screen, that narrative that's usually between reality and I wasn't there, you know. And so, if you, you know, you're doing that with a flower. You better believe you're doing that with other people. Yeah. You know, you see a person, even if you don't know them, you got a whole narrative running about them. And it's worse with people you know. The more history you have with someone, the more you do that. So to me, it's a, it's a practice or I sort of try to make a game out of it. How can I just be with people? Mm. And when they're speaking to me, can I listen to them and not listening to what the voice in my head is saying about what they're saying, right? So in Buddhism, they call that deep listening or compassionate listening. And that's a rare thing. And when someone's listening to you that way, you know it, you feel it, right. and you feel heard. So I was trying to do that. You know, yeah. I'm a novice, <laughs> I'm not, but I've I've done it at times and it feels good. That's great, man. Yeah. What's a song off your uh, new album? Can you play one for us? Or yeah, can you play us something? Yeah, with the guitar. Mm-hmm. Or if you want a different chair or whatever you want, I like to stand. Yeah, do your thing. I think I'll buy a gun and blame it on my hometown It's so cold in the deep She asked me if I think I'll ever see her again I say hopefully Maybe that's how it's supposed to be Maybe that's how it's supposed to be my heroes all died young, they hung themselves with fame And these lunatics molded me I've got a tattoo, it's a joke I keep a secret I need everyone to notice me But maybe that's how it's supposed to be 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 I think I'll die young With all my broken dreams I've got it figured out This is the golden key Everything is how it's supposed to be I think this is how it's supposed to be We messed it all up, now the world is getting warmer Soon LA will be out at open sea Meanwhile I'm falling down, my heart is getting colder I hurt everyone close to me Maybe that's how it's supposed to be Maybe that's how it's supposed to be 
Maybe that's how it's supposed to be Maybe that's how it's supposed to be I think I'll die young With all my broken dreams I've got it figured out This is the golden key the day my daddy died I was down the street I lost my only friend People don't grow on trees But I think that's the way it's supposed to be Yeah, everything is how it's supposed to be My man. <laughs> I like that jazz chord at the end. Thank you. It's clean, man. Major seven. I like, is that what it is? Major seven? Major seven. Yeah, I don't know enough about music, but <laughs> I can play some campfire songs, you know? Yeah. I can get around to the bonfire, you know what I mean? I, don't, I used to play a lot back in the day. I mean, a lot of pop songs I can, I can play if I have the chords, but oh, yeah. let me see. Let me see this thing. I haven't played it in a long time, though. I really like Joni Mitchell a lot. You do, man. I really like I just Joni. Just got into her. Oh my gosh! I used to sing a song. I don't know if I could play it anymore, but mm -hmm. what song? Um, Case of You. Case of You is amazing. My sister mm -hmm. Heidi was singing. I think so. goes <laughs> but I like listening to you <laughs> Thank you. 
Yeah, it's been a while, man. <laughs> a little rusty. We nailed it. <laughs> we did something. She liked it. <laughs> it was cool, man. Purple Rain. Oh. Do you sing Purple Rain ever? Never sang it before, Prince? I've heard it, but I never sang it. Oh man, you'd be amazing at that. So you could hit those notes. <laughs> man, I'm trying to just think of songs I know. <laughs> Could I sing with him? I might know another song of his. How long will they kill our prophets? How we stand aside and look? Ooh, some say it's just a part of it. You got to fulfill the book. But won't you help to see? 
Time. That's fun. A song like that I can play. I could see you ripping the campfire, dude. <clears throat> you know what I mean? It used to be, it was probably like eight years ago when I'd play though, like often. I remember I taught myself uh, my freshman year of college. I taught myself. Yeah, you did. Because I, my Where'd brother, you go to school? I went to a, a bunch of different schools, but I went to a school, a small liberal arts school in Illinois called Principia College. And okay. I went to a school in Columbus, Ohio called Capital University. But my brother is the number one jazz violinist in the world. So I grew up listening to him play jazz violin and feeling like I was ignorant until I learned an instrument because I didn't know an instrument. And I remember, what did I learn? Gosh, I don't even know how to play it anymore, but I can't remember any of this stuff. I learned, um, I, I didn't even really learned how to play it that well. Um, gosh, by Kansas. What was like the love song by Kansas? Oh, Dust in the Wind, I think I learned. How does it go? Do you know how to play it? Nope. <laughs> I can't remember how to do it. You've been playing longer than me. No, I can't remember. I'm getting really mixed up now. But I used to learn like these like, you know, love songs and campfire songs and anything I could at that time. Once I learned like four chords, and I was like, oh, you can play lots of stuff. But originally I just wanted to learn songs. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, let me get into this a little more. But I was never good enough with, like, the finger stuff or, like, playing solos. I tried blues chords, and I just could never really get it. And I didn't love, my voice wasn't good enough to be like, uh, if I could really sing, then I, maybe I'd get more into it. You but learn that, too. Oh, it's hard, man. I know. Hard. I was in choir for years, but I never really got that good. I can hit on pitch, but, yeah, it just never sounded that good. Anyways. Dude, this was awesome, man. Thank you, man. I appreciate it, Thank man. Thank you for having me on. It's a real honor, man. I got a couple final questions for you. Please. What's the lyric, if you had one message, if you could only sing one more song to the world, let's say this is your last moment many years from now, but it's your last day. You know it's your last day. You've done everything you want to do in your life. You've written all the songs. You've had all the experiences. You've connected with all the people, you've traveled, but you can only share one phrase of a song. It could be a chorus, it could be like... Does it have to be mine? It could be yours or it could be someone else's. Yeah. What would be the, the line or the sentence that you would share, that you'd want the world to be your last song that you would sing of a, of a piece of a song? So for me, I've thought about this a lot. Wow. I haven't written that song for me yet. But the song I would sing is the one when we just played Redemption Song. That's tied for my favorite song ever. And the line from it would be, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our mind. You know? This is all stuff we were talking about before. And it's not, it's not, that line applies to anyone, yeah. to everyone. As soon as you get caught up in a concept, you know, you're trapped, you're slave to that <clears throat> concept. So that would be it. That song to me is like, it's a perfect song. And I remember listening to that song a few years ago 
and thinking to myself, I know all these words, they're all in my vocabulary. I can play all the chords. I can hit all the notes. So why, why ain't I write a song that good yet? And uh, it's because I had to do that inner work that I'm doing now. And so the f- deeper I go, the further I go inside, I think the closer I get to redemp- my redemption song. Mm, that's cool, man. That's real cool. I like, I like that you're doing the work on yourself and taking time off to really reflect more mm-hmm. and give your mind and your heart and your soul the nurturing and the, the food that it needs to thrive and grow. That's how I think it's a direct, that's what I'm always telling my manager. He's like, you take all this time, I'm like, it's not off though. It's not off. I have to do it. Every athlete needs an off season where they reflect, train in different ways to strengthen their body and their mind and, and get stronger for the next season. So. Mm-hmm. This is a question I ask him at the end. It's called the three truths. Based on everything you've learned in your life and experiences, imagine all the songs you've written you've got to take with you. No one has access to them anymore. Okay. All your words, you've put it out there, but now you've got to take it with you okay. as your last day. And you've got to, you've got to die with your, your songs with you, right? Okay. But you get to write down your final truths, three lessons that you would share with the world, or I like to call it your three truths. Um, and again, you've achieved everything, done everything you want to do, but you've got to take all your work with you and you can leave behind three truths. What would you say are your three big lessons to share with the world? What a question, man. First truth would be your smiles don't result from good things. They result in good things. Second truth would be Nietzsche. It's Pali for language the Buddha spoke. It's Pali for everything impermanence. Everything's impermanent. When you really look at things, there's nothing to hold on to. Really nothing. I mean, whatever you think is sturdy in your life, it's really not. And so whether it's a relationship or a job or what you name it, it's going to end at some point. And the sooner you can make peace with that, we can make peace with that. Because I'm not done making peace with that. The more, the more elegantly you can ride the waves of life and the waves of life and death. Third truth. I think I'll use my dad for the third one. Health and happiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, man. Well, I want to acknowledge you, Mike, for a moment because you have such a, a childlike spirit about you, a curiosity, uh, a kindness, and a wonder towards making music and making art and expressing yourself. And I think it's a lost art mm-hmm. in making art. And a lot of us are focused on career and goals and other things, but we forget to take time to reflect and express ourselves in a creative way. And you've done a beautiful job of expressing yourself by everything, your way of being, the way you show up, your 
hair, your beard is an art, you know, <laughs> your performances, your communication style, like everything for you feels like an expression of your art. So I acknowledge you for, yeah, yeah. for showing others what's possible in them by being true to yourself. That means and being a lot consistent. To me. Yeah, man. Thank you. Of course. How can we follow you and support you? You've got an album. You're going to be doing Walking Across America next year. Doing yeah. A walking tour. Yeah. You've got songs coming out soon. Where Where do you? Where can we listen to your music? Do you Spotify, iTunes, all the. Yeah, I would say um, anywhere there's music, my my new stuff will be. I'm not sure when we put this out. I may have a new song out. May not. Maybe close. Okay. Uh, Depending on our release date here. They can follow you on Spotify right now and it'll yeah. be there. You yeah, know. follow me on Spotify. I think that's the best It's way. Mike Posner over on Spotify. Mike Posner, P-M-I-K-E-P-O-S-N as in Nancy, E-R. And uh, and then I'm on the Instagram, same thing. I'm a, I'm a sort of haphazard poster. Because <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I just throw, hate my phone. But sure. sometimes I'm on there. So we'll follow you there. Obviously, iTunes and all other places. But anywhere music to listen to, you can check. I would say the biggest thing, though, January 11th, man, my new album. If you really, if something about this vibe with you, the new album. You know, I'm going to put out singles before, basically to draw attention to that. But this album is by far the best thing I ever made. And uh, it's a, I'm super proud of it. I'm super proud of it. So I would say, listen, if you if you got 40 minutes, it's 40 minutes listening to that thing. And I don't think you'll regret it. You might, you know. No, it's beautiful, man. Your <laughs> lyrics are unbelievable. Even if even if it's not your style of music that Mike does, his lyrics in this really make you think. You know, you and Adam are in cue reminding me a lot of, of each other and the way you guys construct your words and your poetry about just raising the consciousness level of like what we're doing in our daily lives. Mm-hmm. And you say it in a poetic way with the melody that brings in, it just sparks curiosity and it, it opens the spirit up to think differently about our lives. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's powerful about what you do, what NQ does. Yeah, um, we borrow from each other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was listening to it in the car with him and he was just like freaking out. And to have some him freak out when he's one of the greatest stage poet performers I've ever seen, yeah. to have him freak out about yeah, lyrics yeah. and be inspired by your lyrics was, I was like, well, okay, this is impressive. Thank so, you, man. Yeah, well, I've definitely been inspired a lot by him. Yeah, I did great. a poetry album because of him. You did? Yeah. That's yeah, great. I used to do a poem each show last year, mm. all because of him, man. He's great. Never did it. He's him. great. And um, you do little pop-up tours every now and then so people can follow you on your website and see like yeah. tour dates and all that stuff. Correct. Correct. Final question for you, and then I'd love for you to play, if you're down, to finish with a song. Um, and it could be seated or whatever, but I'd love for you to finish with a song. Do you have one of Avicii's songs? Well, yeah, I, lear- I learned as an adult, so I don't, people, I, you know this one, so I really know, like, my songs. Your songs, got it, got it. And even some of my songs that I wrote before I played guitar, I don't know. Really? <laughs> so I'm like, <laughs> I got to learn all those still. Well, let's do this first. I love your definition of greatness. What does it mean to you? Presence. Mm -hmm. Presence. So if you look at life, most of the time, I I like to think of it like a graph. Like there's an x-axis, and that's like 
what you're doing over time. And the y-axis is how present you are while you're doing it. And so, um, man, you can be, you can be like making a m- bunch of money and very successful, or the, the, the old cliche, man, and not happy. Or you can be like doing nothing. You can be literally sitting in a chair meditating and be happy. So to me, it's like, it doesn't matter what you're doing that much. Like the old, the old proverb before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. And so what does that mean? It means it doesn't, it's the, you don't necessarily need to change what you're doing. You change how you're doing it. Change how you're doing it. So the more present you can be, um, is the, I think, the greater you are. Mm. Mike Postman. Thanks, brother. Appreciate you, man. Thank you, you, man. This is uh, Stuck in the Middle. Perfume on my Puts me in the past Too tough to be without her But too afraid to ask Here I am again Stuck in the middle Here I am again Stuck in the middle Too young to settle down Too old to be in bars It's hard to take it easy It's easy to be hard Here I am again Stuck in the middle 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 Forgive me, I am building my ship as it sails. How do I become who I want to be while still remaining myself? People love the old me. I don't know where he's gone. Too tired to be famous. Too vain to be unknown. Here I am again, stuck in the middle Here I am again, stuck in the middle Here I am again, stuck in the middle Here I am again Stuck in the middle. Yeah.
Mike Poser in the house, baby. Yeah. Smash it. <laughs> Appreciate you, man. Thanks, bro. That was dope. Yeah. That was dope.